off in Kansas City, believe it or not, uh, here in the eve of the Super Bowl, but uh, it's not being played there, but I said, uh, well, at least you'll be there, and if you're there on Sunday, I don't know if they're going to be, I think they are going to be there on Sunday, I think they're maybe going to Rick Holland's church, but I said the streets should probably be empty, (laughs) so, but uh, it's good to see you all today, Um, I'm a little uh, concerned uh, since Rich announced that I was going to be talking on sin. And uh, Pastor Jerry's been calling me Mr. Corruption ever since. That, that bothers me. Now, Marv graciously volunteered uh, to be an object lesson. Uh, and, uh, and so this morning I was uh, talking to Pastor Jerry and Marv. And I said, yeah, I forgot to get a stool up here for Marv. And Marv says, uh, well, will that make me a stool sample? there's one more (laughs) pastor jerry (laughs) proceeds to say i volunteer to go up mar but i'm only partially depraved you're totally depraved (laughs) so Well, that's probably the lightest moments of the morning as we dive into a dark subject, and that is our sin. And before we do that, can we uh, open with a word of prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, we do come before you and uh, we thank you for this time that we can gather together as men. And Lord, indeed, it is a dark subject this morning as we consider our sin, but uh, Father, I do believe it's a grace that you show us our sin. For Lord, we must see our sin before we can see the need for the Savior. And Father, we just thank you for Christ. And we pray that in this morning, we'll come to recognize in an even greater way what he did for us. In his name we pray, amen. Okay. So this is uh, called Man's Problem, Total Depravity. And uh, I do want to start off with a a little introduction here in terms of a couple hymns, good old hymns that uh, have been around for a long time. One is, Alas, and did my Savior die, or sometimes it's called At the Cross, by Isaac Watts. And in that, Uh, The words are, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die, would He devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Now, where's Tim Showalter? Is he here? I need Tim Showalter here. He got quite upset with me one year at a a retreat, just teasing, but uh, because I had referred to us all as worms after hearing, I think, Chris Hamilton talk and uh, and, he, and that kind of shocked him. He had never heard that expression before. Well, there it is in a great Christian hymn talking about us being worms. And, uh, and there are others, though, who have decided in today's world to change the words. Because to think of us as a worm is just, you know, that's offensive. Now, why would we want to think of ourselves as worms? So... So the Baptist, a Baptist hymn, though, I found, uh, actually has changed it to for sinners such as I. Okay, that's accurate. I don't think it has quite the emotional punch of worm, but it's accurate. But others say for such a one as I, which pretty much loses all of the depth in, 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 the, in the meaning behind that. Well, even amazing grace is not immune from uh, revision today. So we know the great opening line, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. That's even worse than worm, I think. And, And so that one now has been changed. And by the way, Paul talked about being a wretched man, did he not? In Romans 7. But now it's been changed to that saved a soul like me, 
Well, that's a lot warmer and fuzzier. Indeed, he's done that. That freely saved me. That saved and set me free. That saved and strengthened me. Well, that sounds much more affirming, doesn't it? Much more uh, comforting, doesn't it? Uh, well, no, I, it's, it's not more comforting because we need to understand where we start from and why we needed that amazing grace. But we're going to take today and look into the heart of what we've talked about before. Pastor Rich has mentioned hamartiology, okay, the study of sin. So now we're going to look at sin proper today. We're going to do that by considering the definition, what is sin, make sure we understand that. Uh, we'll talk then about the origin of sin, how did it come about, where did it come from? And then finally, we'll be looking at what are the consequences of our sin, and I hope at the end to, to give some practical implications from this study. Okay, sounds sound fair? So... First off, I assume the charts are getting up there. Yeah, so sin, a definition for sin. Uh, any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. So that is a definition from Wayne Grudem, his systematic theology book. In MacArthur's book, in his uh, chapters on sin, he says this, that sin is a violation of the creator creature relationship and indeed it is and we'll see that in in uh, stark detail first john 3 4 gives a very pithy concise definition sin is lawlessness okay we disobey god's law and in fact in ephesians 2 2 we are referred to as sons of disobedience all right I really like what uh, R.C. Sproul has said before. He has called sin cosmic treason. Cosmic treason. That's a really catchy way to think of it because indeed that's what it is. We are rebels against God. And uh, so I've come up with what I call my definition and that is sin is an obscene act because it's detestable, men. Sin, when we get to understand who God is, is detestable. It is obscene. It is an obscene act of rebellion against the holy God who specially created us. We owe our very existence to Him and providentially sustains us. Every breath we take comes from Him. And yet, we rebel against Him. Shameful, shameful. Isaiah 45.9 says, Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. Okay? Now, just in brief, I'll mention there are at least four sin types. I think MacArthur says there's six in his book, but then I could only find five. Maybe I'm misreading something, but it seemed like he went through and went through five, and I couldn't quite pick out the sixth. Uh, I don't know if I'm reading it too fast or what, but I went through it twice. But I'm going to put it simply as this. There's action, there's inaction, there's sins of thought, and there's thin, sins of promotion. That is when we promote others to actually sin. There's a, an interesting sin taxonomy, we could call it, that's in Jerry Bridges' book, Respectable Sins. And uh, when we hear the word sin, you know, we can think immediately of an Adolf Hitler, right? Or we can think of a Judas. Well, and Bridges talks about there being these spectacular sins that everybody recognizes. In fact, some today say that uh, uh, the whole definition of evil 
the whole notion of a Satan is all embodied in Adolf Hitler today. That's what everyone thinks of. They don't think of Satan, they think of Hitler. Um, but, uh, and indeed, that was spectacularly sinful. But we can look to the Bible and we can see that Satan's fall, Satan's sin is spectacular. The, the, uh, the sins of Joseph's brothers that then led Joseph to save his people, his family and his people. Uh, what, a, what an amazing sin that led to all kinds of uh, consequences. Uh, David, King David, and his adulterous uh, activity and his murderous activity in relation to Bathsheba, Judas I mentioned, and then and the greatest sin of all, the crucifixion of Christ. Okay, Well, those would probably all go to that first tier when you think the spectacular sins. But then we think of more scandalous sins, says Bridges, like murder or lying or sexual sins. Okay? Uh, and then he talks about respectable sins. The sins that happen, the sins that we commit, that we kind of brush aside or we tend to ignore. Things like anxiety, not trusting in God, Pride, and that can come in very outgoing ways, but it can come, as you all know, in inward senses. Oh, aren't I good? Didn't I do a good thing? Or worldliness, you know, and we can get caught up very easily in worldliness. So, and then I'll add one more, and that would be the unpardonable sin, the sin that, uh, that uh, um, where one who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, as Jesus put it. So, so there's at least four uh, uh, sorts of sins. Uh, but Jeremy Taylor, uh, an old uh, 16th century uh, Anglican, uh, he was, uh, I think he was uh, involved with uh, Cromwell, if I'm not mistaken, I may be wrong. But uh, he said, no sin is small. No sin is small. And then he, he uses an analogy. No grain of sand is small in the mechanism of a watch. It occurred to me that, that that kind of analogy might uh, kind of be useless in the future as we've now moved to, you know, uh, Apple Watches or people don't even use watches. They just use their phones for that. <laughs> so uh, the idea of a grain of sand bollocksing up the actions of a watch uh, might be uh, uh, passing us by. But anyway... Uh, we're going to move to a little bit of a cultural backdrop, if you will. And the question, are humans basically bad or basically good? I'm going to give you a few statistics here, or a few uh, poll uh, numbers here. Uh, but before I do that, C.S. Lewis said in uh, God in the Dock, he said, the greatest barrier I have met to evangelism is the almost total absence from the minds of my audience of any sense of sin. Now, bear in mind, he wrote this in 1948. 1948. I, I dare say it's even gotten worse. And uh, although, interestingly enough, I was uh, thinking about it this morning, you know, while the notion of Sin, at least as biblically defined, is fading away. Uh, our culture is inventing new sins. Uh, for example, uh, the sin of misgendering someone with the wrong pronouns. Or, or the sin of uh, stating that uh, the life in the womb uh, is valuable and ought to be saved over and above the decisions of a woman, okay? Uh, so you cannot stand for unborn life anymore without being assailed. 
So it's uh, interesting that uh, there are new sins developed, but in terms of biblical, a biblical sense of sin, that's going away. Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway Survey uh, combine, and about every two years they come out with a new, uh, a, a new results, a new poll results. And listen to these sad numbers. 55%, so over half, uh, strongly agree. This is of evangelical respondents, by the way. Okay, those who claim to be evangelical. And they, they do some filters that kind of help them sort out who might actually be an evangelical. But 55%, over half, strongly agree or somewhat agree that, listen to this, everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. They're partially depraved, like Pastor Jerry. (laughs) 55%. Two-thirds, 66%, strongly agree or somewhat agree that, listen to this, everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. That's in evangelical minds, okay? Well, I'm here to disabuse those who answered those questions in the affirmative uh, with what we're going to look at from the Bible. Uh, in fact, uh, it's growing more and more common in, in social sciences and in, in, in the sciences, the studies, uh, sociology, to, uh, to try and make the case that, in fact, we really are down deep good. I mean, we can hear the Oprah Winfrey's of the world say that, that we're basically good. But there are scientists trying to prove this too. Rutger Bregman, a German, wrote a book, Humankind, A Hopeful History in 2020. He said, most people deep down are pretty decent. Okay. Uh, Adrian F. Ward in The Scientific American back in 2012 said, looking at some studies that they did, and I've and I read through this, and, I, and I, it seemed to me it was pretty apparent what some of the flaws in these studies are. Uh, it said, these study results suggest that Augustine and Hobbes were wrong and that we are fundamentally good creatures after all. Uh, that's not what the Bible says. C.S. Lewis said, the early Christian preachers could assume in their hearers a sense of guilt. Thus, the Christian message was in those days unmistakably the evangelium, the good news. It promised healing to those who knew they were sick. We have to convince our hearers of the unwelcome diagnosis before we can expect them to welcome the news of the remedy. And indeed, that's true. And uh, back in 2002, I attended a conference up in Springfield, Illinois, and uh, the great uh, contemporary theologian D.A. Carson was there and he was speaking on the glory of God. Uh, I, I've been thinking about that since Pastor Rich has been preaching out of John 17 and all the, the discussion of the glory of God. But he said something interesting there at that time. He said, and I wrote these down, he said, when we begin to see God, sin manifests itself in all its ferocious heinousness. In other words, we need to get a picture of God. We need to get an image of God before we can really begin to understand sin. And he said, unless people can see their sin, they cannot possibly see the Savior. All right. I have an illustration here, if we could put that up. I'm calling it cross-buttressing truths. So there's the cross in the middle, and then there's two buttresses holding up that cross. And the idea here is there, you see D.A. Carson's quotes down below, that if we're to really understand that cross, if we're to understand that we even need a Savior, if we're going to understand what Christ did, we've got to get a grip on who holy God is. And we've got to get a grip on who sinful we are. Okay, and Colossians 1, 19 to 22 says it well. For in Christ, 
all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. There is an enmity between us and God in our sin. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. We must get a grip on holy God. We've covered that in the forge when we looked at the attributes of God in a whole semester. And, uh, and D.A. Carson has said when he goes to college campuses, if he starts talking about sin first, they're clueless. They don't have a category for it. They do. They just don't understand it or recognize it as, you know, they have invented their own sins. But uh, they don't really have a category for biblical sin. So he always starts with God. He starts talking to him about God. And then, in contrast, you can start to see, hey, I do need a Savior, okay? So, John Flavel, a great Puritan, said this, they that know God will be humble. They that know themselves cannot be proud. I've said it before, I'll say it again. I don't know, I have any clue how Rich or Pastor Jerry can preach away, teach away, and not get a drink of water. <laughs> you, must, you must have to get used to that. But uh, I want to ask the question, how serious is sin? Okay, how serious is sin? So Jesus said this in Matthew 15, or 5, 17 through 30, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He goes on and talks about not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all of it is accomplished. And, and he says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's how serious sin is. And he goes on from there in the Sermon on the Mount. And I always found... These passages haunting to me when I first encountered them as a young Christian. You know, you have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Anybody ever here get angry with their brother? I have one no. <laughs> Good for you, Joe. <laughs> Anybody here ever insult somebody? <laughs> okay. Um, I say to you that, you know, it, he says then, whoever says you fool, guilty, <laughs> will be liable to the hell of fire. You catch that? I mean, you know, we think of those scandalous sins we talked about, like murder. But then just getting angry with somebody, I mean, that's just human. You know, calling somebody a fool, well, I was frustrated. And we pass those by. Here it is. You fool will be liable to the hell of fire. And then... And this one, I think, really punches men hard. It punched me hard. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. Okay, check, I haven't done that. But I say to you, at least as I thought I understood it, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. <laughs> Maybe I'm the only guy here, but uh, I'm guilty. I'm guilty. And then he goes on, talks about if your right eye offends you, pluck it out and, and, and gets really... But then he says, it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. 
And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Okay? Men, we can't claim we're not sinful. We are sinful. We need something to save us from these sins because they're sending us to hell unless there's something, someone out there to save us. Um, I I have a John Flavel quotation that I'd like to to read to you. I thought it was just wonderful uh, to um, explain the seriousness of sin. He said, fools make a mock at sin. And there are few in the world who are fully sensible of its evil, but certainly... If God should exact of thee the full penalty, thy eternal sufferings could not satisfy for the evil there is in one vain thought. You may think it severe that God subject his creatures to everlasting sufferings for sin and never be satisfied with them anymore. In other words, God sends us to hell for eternity. But when you have well considered that the being against whom you sin is the infinitely blessed God and how God dealt with the angels that fell, you will change your mind. Oh, the depth of the evil of sin. If ever you wish to see how great and horrid and evil sin is, measure it in your thoughts either by the infinite holiness and excellency of God, who is wronged by it, so measured against God, or by the infinite sufferings of Christ, who died to satisfy for it. And then you will have a deeper apprehension of its enormity. Do you get that? You can go back to that cross-buttressing chart and you get the idea. We've got to see God for who he is. And we've got to see the Savior for what he had to do to save us. That's how big our sins are. No matter how little, no matter if they're a grain of sand that would bollocks up a watch, they matter. They matter tremendously. So what we're going to do is quickly go through the story of man and sin in four acts, I'm calling it. Act one, we are created, okay? Uh, We have divine creation, as we read about in Genesis. So God, God created man in his own image, and God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. We have a divine command to man this new special creation, this very good creation. Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Okay, so we were created good, excuse me, by a great God, and we were told, don't eat of that one tree. Everything else is free. Don't eat of this tree. And now we come to the fall or what's often called original sin, or where we find original sin. Um, Owen Strand, in his book, remarks, he says, the origin of human evil begins with the subversion of the created order. And indeed, that's what happens. Okay, we just saw God created us special in his image, uh, created us very good, and uh, he told us, hey, just... Leave that tree alone. And now what happens? Well, first off, before this, Satan rebels. In Isaiah 14, we learn about that. And Satan uh, declared, I'm going to ascend to heaven and I will make myself like the most high. And so he was the first one to want to be God. He wouldn't be the last one. Then Satan's deception in the garden. He said to Eve, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? You will not surely die. You will be like God. And sure enough, 
the attraction to be independent, uh, to be unconstrained, to be autonomous, to be godlike was too much for Eve and her husband Adam. They wanted to be, uh, there was a, uh, a legal scholar that used this term in, a, in, a, in an article I'd read from many years ago. We want to be godlets. We all want to be our own little god, don't we? And that's the temptation. And, uh, and then so uh, humanity rebels. She took the fruit and ate. He ate. And the man and the woman hid themselves. They did realize their sin. They did realize they were in trouble. God said they would die. Well, there is a divine curse that then follows. Satan cursed, was cursed by God. Uh, although there was a messianic prophecy in there that, that uh, Christ would crush or bruise the head of Satan. Marriage became disordered. Ecology was disordered. Work was disordered. A death for man came. And I think it's uh, Strand uh, it talks about death in terms of judicially, spiritually, physically, and eternally. Okay, we are death in, in many dimensions. And then banishment from the garden. And so what's left we are now Satan's progeny. We are Satan's children. Do you recall that Jesus said of the people in Israel then, you are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. He said that to the Pharisees and those listening. And so we are Satan's children apart from Christ. And we have an Adamic inheritance, an inheritance from Adam. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. We don't have time to dive into the idea. You can read about it in, uh, in Strand or in in uh, MacArthur's book about the federal headship or the representative headship of, of Adam. Um, you know, a real simple uh, way to think about this is we don't have any struggle at all to understand that in Christ, he is now, if we trust in him, if we have placed faith in him, he is now our representative, if we will. He is now our head. He is the one who imputes his righteousness to us. Okay, Well, it's kind of the flip of that with Adam. He's, apart from Christ, he's our head. He's our representative. It's his sin that's imputed to us. Okay, If you want to go deeper into those thoughts, you can look in, in Strand and MacArthur. We have more ground to cover. What's the, what's the academic question? Inheritance. Did that get dropped? Oh, no, it, it, uh, it hasn't been shown yet. Can we go one more chart there? No. So some of these didn't quite get up there. So there's an uh, Satan's progeny at Adamic inheritance. Okay. Okay. So question, how did this happen if God is sovereign? Is he responsible for sin? That's an obvious question. That's a question a lot of people ask. And we're going to dive into some deep waters here. Well, first off, God has his sovereign purposes. In Isaiah 46, 8, 11, 8 through 11, he says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And then later in that, he says, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. So no matter what we're to understand, we are to understand that God is in control. He has his purposes, and he is working from beginning to end. Okay, Genesis 50.20 says, 
in, in the case of Joseph with his brothers, he says, as for you, you meant evil against me. His brothers sinned, okay? But that wasn't apart from God's control in some way. But God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. The Westminster Confession of Faith says this, the, sinful, the sinfulness still belongs to the creature and does not proceed from God, whose holy righteousness does not, does not and cannot cause or approve uh, sin. Now, we are in deep waters, and this is hard to comprehend. Let's face it. I liked something I heard D.A. Carson say once before, or I read him writing it once before, and he said, God is sovereign, and indeed he stands behind all things from beginning to end, okay? But he stands asymmetrically behind good and evil. Good, he's far more active, if you will. Evil, you know, we talk about he allows it. Um, I mean, there's a whole lot of thinking that has to go into this, but his point is that even the evil acts, Joseph's brother's sin was still in God's plan. God was not the author of that sin. He did not cause that sin. That sin came out of the heart of those brothers. But it was not outside of the supervision of God, if you will. Okay? God has secrets. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of the law. God has told us a bunch, guys, that we can do. But there are some secret things. He is an infinite God, an all-holy God. And how are our finite minds going to grasp everything about God? As I often say, God is greater than we think. All of the Bible declares that. And I grab hold of that truth because I know I can trust him because the Bible tells me I can trust him um, we cannot understand everything can we getting these up, up there okay uh, Psalm 147 5 through 6 great is our Lord and abundant in power his understanding is beyond measure but praise God he the Lord lifts up the humble he casts the wicked to the ground. We must not be insolent. We must not think we know better than God, to contend against God. Uh, I love in the book of Job, after Job and his, his friends you know, talk and talk about what's going on with what happened to Job and all the rest, and finally God says to Job, Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Well, that's a punch in the gut, isn't it? <laughs> you know, who are we going to trust here? John Calvin said, how it was ordained by the foreknowledge and decree of God what man's future was without God being implicated as associate in the fault as the author and approver of transgression. In other words, you know, how it was ordained by God, how it was known by God, how it was determined by God that sin would happen, transgression would happen is clearly a secret so much excelling the insight of the human mind that I am not ashamed to confess ignorance. And neither am I. And I pray neither are you ashamed to confess ignorance when it comes to some of these secret things that we're just not going to know, at least this side of heaven. Now, Act 3 
we're going to move to, and that is man corrupted and rebellious. Okay? And this is where we get into the idea of total depravity. This is where we begin to understand Marv. Oh, that slipped right by him. <laughs> so, do you know what the number one cause of death in America is? Heart disease. The CDC, according to the CDC, if you're going to trust the CDC, <laughs> the number one cause of death is heart disease. Well, indeed, we have heart disease. The Bible tells us our hearts are deceitful. They are diseased. Jeremiah 17.9, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Hardened hearts. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. We have darkened hearts, says the Bible. Romans 1.21, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Evil hearts, Matthew 15.19, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. So we have heart disease now as a result of the fall of original sin. We are totally depraved. You don't believe that enough yet? Let's look at the Roman 23s, I call them. First sin, Romans 14, 23, the end of that verse, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Now there's a really concise definition of sin and a helpful definition of sin. The scope of sin, Romans 3, 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Well, that's everybody, right? All have sinned. And the consequence, Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. Sure enough, just as God said in the garden. We are now enemies of God. This is another important consequence. Romans 5.10, for, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. Okay, we are enemies. Remember our definition. We are in rebellion against God. We are fighting against God. Indeed, we're hostile to God. Humanity's hostility toward God is a result of our sin. Romans 8, 7 to 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Okay? Now, I'd like to ask somebody if they could read Romans 3, 10 through 18 for us. Anybody volunteer for that? Tom? All right. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongue they speak deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness? Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. I told you, men, this would be a dark subject today, didn't I? And indeed, that's uh, hard to get darker than that. 
So we are impotent to do good. Uh, in fact, we have an incapacity to do anything but sin. Jeremiah 13.23 says this, can the, oath, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Well, the obvious answer is no, right? Then also, you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. The, uh, the response is no. <laughs> He's making a point. We can't change who we are. We are sinners by nature and by choice. We are blind, as the Bible says in 2 Corinthians, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. We can't see the light of the gospel. We are enslaved, Romans 6.20, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. We are dead, Ephesians 2.1 and two, you were dead in the trespasses of sin in which you once walked. How much clearer can it be? We have not, as a common metaphor is often used, we are not those who have just fallen into the ocean and in need of a life preserver that we can grab onto to be saved. Can a dead person grab onto a life preserver? Can a blind person even see the life preserver? Can a chained person even reach the life preserver? We are blind, enslaved, dead. We are incapacitated we cannot do anything but sin and we cannot save ourselves now there's a confused objection uh, by man but I know a non-Christian who is and does good okay true enough uh, there are those who can do good uh, Jesus even said in Matthew 7, 11, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, I mean, even the evil ones can give some good gifts, but very quickly we can think of those as uh, there are tem there's temporal goodness or relative goodness in this world. Uh, apparently even the evil ones can give good gifts to their children, as Jesus said. That's a, some of uh, the common grace that's out there. But, it is not uh, an objective or an eternal good, all right, that leads us to God, that satisfies God. Um, we are not as sinful as we could be, and that's a grace of God. Now, we see some people go down dark paths uh, that appear to be just about as sinful as they could be, but... Most of us don't go down those dark paths. Total depravity, what is it? So this is a definition from John Calvin. We are so vitiated and perverted in every part of our nature that by this great corruption, we stand justly condemned and convicted by God. And uh, John MacArthur and his, his uh, essential Christian doctrine. There it is, Joe. Were you the one asking me about No, Emerson was asking me about the book. That's the name of the book. <laughs> essential Christian doctrine. Some of the newer guys haven't received that, that, that book yet, so that's a book you need to get. The, those are some of those other references uh, in our charts. But he says we're all, both corrupted, we're incapable and, and, oh, by the way, this is universally true of men. Okay? Now, Act 4, we're guilty and condemned. Oh, boy, this is getting darker and darker, isn't it? <laughs> I'm, I'm going to give you a hint. I'm going to give you a little hope at the end. All right? <laughs> I can't leave you here in this morass, this swamp but guilty and condemned, wholly accountable, or wholly accountable, 
Romans 14.12 Each of us will give an account of himself to God. We're already condemned. John 3.18 Whoever does not believe in Jesus is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Under judgment, Ephesians 2.3 We all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath. Hellbound. Luke 12, 4. Uh, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you to fear him. Okay? Jesus spoke about hell a lot. We learn more about hell from Christ than anyone else in the Bible. Humanity's hopelessness. Matthew 19, 23 to 26. Jesus answered a question from his disciples after uh, they had met with the rich young man who, uh, who just uh, walked away from Jesus after Jesus kind of answered his questions and poked and prodded at him and, and the man walked away and Jesus talked about how difficult it would be to save. The, the G- disciples said, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. It's impossible with us, guys. That's why I hope you've seen that one buttress about sinful man. Because we need to understand that to start looking up and looking towards the Savior, Christ, who hung on that cross. So the epilogue, but, but. Uh, R.C. Sproul has said of the word but, it's the essence of the good news. The essence of the good news. There is hope, but God. To extend this. Matthew 19, 23 to 26. But with God, all things are possible. Jesus didn't leave it that it's impossible with man, but with God, all things are possible. In Ephesians 2, 4 through 5, after Paul goes through just beating us up and telling us we're dead in our transgressions, He says, but God, let's see, Christians here. I know your wife, Tina, loves this Martin Lloyd-Jones sermon. (laughs) We were talking and and, uh, I had to, I have a recording, now Tina has it, (laughs) of Martin Lloyd-Jones in a sermon he gave on Ephesians and it was, but God. And if you ever heard Martin Lloyd-Jones preach, I mean, he just goes along and he's talking about the sin of man, the sin of man, and then, but God. (laughs) And only the way Martin Lloyd-Jones could could preach like, but God. And it just sends chills down your spine and it just brings you to the reality that God has saved us from all this. He saved us from this bleak, dark, hopeless picture of man in our sin. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Wow. Wow. Thank you, Lord Jesus. So a few applications. Growing in true Biblical knowledge of ourselves and our desperate condition leaves us first humbled in ourselves like King David. Uh, King David understood in Psalm 51 who he was and how desperate he was. As I'm fond of saying, uh, I'm fond of saying God's greater than we think. I'm also fond of saying we're worse than we think. Now, I hope I've disabused you this morning as best I can 
with God's truth disabused you of the idea of thinking of yourself better than you are. We're worse than we think apart from Christ. Understand all sin is most vile in that it disobeys, dishonors, and destroys the God who made us. We essentially kill God in our lives when we try to place ourselves in His place. There was that great Time magazine cover, Is God Dead, back in the 60s. And uh, that's what we try and do. We just kill God in our lives because we want to be our own gods. Apprehend that our sins deserve God's wrath. You deserve it, guys. I deserve it. Concede that all things we do are sin apart from true faith. Romans 12 or 14.23. Oh, I have a mistake there. That should be 14.23, not 14.3 in your notes. Acknowledge all our, quote, good works will not save us from the judgment. Anybody that thinks, if I do enough good things in this world, is sorely mistaken and will be shocked and surprised to find out where they end up if they don't know Christ. Or if they think the way they get in His good favor is to do good things in this world. We are to do good things in this world. But they are to be out of gratitude for what Christ has already done for us. Beware self-deception regarding your relationship with Christ. Um, another chilling passage in the scriptures is found in the Sermon on the Mount as well where Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Have you been teaching about Jesus? Have you been talking about Jesus to others? Um, but there's going to be, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Yeah, yeah. I did that, God. And cast out demons in your name. Well, I haven't cast out any demons. <laughs> I don't think you have either. But And do many mighty works in your name. I did this for you, God. I volunteered for VBS. Which, by the way, they're going to need volunteers for VBS. <laughs> Since we're starting that up again this year. And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Remember, sin is lawlessness. We learned that earlier. That's a scary thought, guys. You know, but if we know Christ truly, genuinely, if we have a passion for Him, passion for His Word, you can rest assured. And then finally, confess our sins and repent. Whether unbeliever, you desperately need to do this, or even believer, we are told to do this too. Because we know as long as we live in this flesh, this flesh is still corrupted. I am indeed Mr. Corruption, Jerry. <laughs> but so are you, brother. Final two thoughts, and this is courtesy of John Newton near the end of his life. I love this, this, some of the last words of his. He said in a conversation with somebody, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner, that Christ is a great Savior. This has been dark. Hang on to that last part of John Newton's quote. Christ is a great Savior. 
I will do one other thing. I'm going to recommend a book to you guys. If you want to dig deeper into sin, I don't know if you want to do that or not after this, <laughs> but it's a book called Knowing Sin by Mark Jones. Simply Knowing Sin, the subtitle is Seeing a Neglected Doctrine Through the Eyes of the Puritans. He has all kinds of wonderful quotations and thoughts and inputs from the Puritans who, I dare say, seem to understand sin a lot better than we do in the modern era. And uh, they reflected on it a lot. Uh, they also understood a lot of things deeper than we do today, it seems to me. But uh, thank you for your uh, patience uh, to sit through uh, what has been rather bleak <laughs> teaching. But I hope it's helpful, and I hope it's at least pointed you to the one we need on that cross, Jesus Christ. All right? Bless you, man.